0: And because the guy was the manager of the trailer park, that is why it was called the Sunset Flip.
1: Oh, okay. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion. Vern and Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle.
0: This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire.
1: Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I'm your host, Jay Gilke, and I'm sitting with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from King Kong Bundy and Ricky Morton to Chavo Guerrero Jr. and Tommy Dreamer, a wrestler, manager, commentator, And trainer, who's contributed essays to wrestling publications, as well as learned the art of the Persian clubs from the Iron Sheikh. With 20 years of experience, he is a true Renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the incomparable Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. We're going to jump right back into the conversation with Derek. Last week we were talking about the territory system. And uh, this week is no different. So, without any further ado, let's go. Ganya creates AWA, um, basically, uh, from what I remember. Uh, he creates it basically off of the fact that uh, um, a little tiff with NWA over him and Pat O'Connor. Correct?
0: Well, I mean well, that that was the storyline version. He just wanted to go into business for himself. Right. Uh, so he I'm bought, just, I, I'm just leading you to the water water. Oh, that's fine. I'm, that's I'm trying fine. to
1: get, I'm, I'm just leading you the way. So. Okay.
0: Fair enough. Um, uh, well, Ganya became a superstar in the early days of television, you know, had a lot of oomph behind him. Uh, when he decided to go back to Minnesota after traveling the country, um, bought into the Steckers territory uh, and got involved with Wally Carbo at that time, which is the, the, you know, the promoters before him. Right. Now remember these, these horrendous business practices have been going on forever in wrestling. Right. I and mean, it's a business established by con men run by con men. So there was always the work going on. So, uh, Wally Carbo was rumored to have some very powerful friends in the twin cities. And that's, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> um, so Ganya gets into that territory, starts buying up bits and pieces. He actually worked in coordination with the Duziks in Omaha, Nebraska, and there were two AWA champions for a while. Oh, okay. Where the Duziks would still send money to Minneapolis but were allowed to run their own TV and everything. And then finally when the Duziks hung it up, Ganya just absorbed that in. So he you know, he built up into a great Midwest Empire.
1: Was there anyone specific as far as, when you say there were two champions at that point, I'm assuming eight, the main Ganya's AWA, him as champion at that point, correct? Yeah, uh,
0: I mean, it goes back and forth, but it would be like him in Minneapolis and Dr. X in Omaha based on the match they had there. But it was never a... Like a
1: no one like I don't say a name I say that in air quotes but like it what they weren't bringing in somebody else comparable to a Vern Gagne no. to be the AWA champion in those in that other territory no no it'd be whoever
0: whoever they built up sure yeah. um so we brought up the AWA which it, it basically establishes itself as a you know a, an organization for wrestling uh you've got the Bill Watts in the mid south area. Who um, have also seceded from wrestling. Now keep in mind, Vern Gagne, even though he was in, you know, in the AWA, was still on the NWA board. Okay. Bill Watts still went to the NWA meetings. Yes. So whereas they were separate legal taxable entities, it was still part of that network that existed, and all these guys that would talk and shuffle talent around. Okay. So. The existence of the AWA and these other territories made it easy for the NWA to say, look, we're not a monopoly.
1: Right, right.
0: Right. That makes so, sense. But okay. it's still all worked but together. It was still all there. So now when you... you know, uh, I don't want to forget, oh, sure. uh, since we're in the Midwest, you've got the Indianapolis area. Well,
1: that's exactly... I was just going to okay. bring that up. So, you know, you have AWA, and you, you think about the Indianapolis area, you think of the Bruiser. Uh-huh. Uh, you think of WWA. Dick the Bruiser. Um, And then also, to that point, I think of The Sheik in Detroit uh-huh. Um, and big-time wrestling. And I, to me, while those are... are popular promotions or we know about them. Uh, How does that work out? Were they their own territories, in a sense, uh, just working those states? Because it seems like those two specifically just worked the states that they were in. Um, Is that the truth, or did they expand outside of Indianapolis or Detroit?
0: Well, um Let's see, like Indianapolis or Detroit were like the, the I want to say those were the grocery money teri- sure towns for that territory where that's where the guys would make their big payday, but then they'd also make the different loops and make the, the crappy paydays, you know, in, in the hopes for this big one. Uh, Dick the Bruiser had Indianapolis set up. He also had a piece of Louisville because when Jarrett started running there, he and Wilbur Snyder took offense to it and got paid off for a while. Um, the Sheik had Michigan tied up so he would run in that area. He also made a lot of money crossing the crossing the stream into Toronto. Okay. You know, so they were able to draw from that. Um Dick the Bruiser, uh also a big tough ex jock, but part of that Ganya fraternity of Sure. You know, guys that could wrestle plus uh, you know, a lot of the characters. Uh the Sheik had a lot of short matches. Right. Um Used to, formerly paid good, but his territory went down because he stayed with booking himself on top too much. So, but his mat, his shows were basically all about the main event where the Sheik against Blank. Right. Um. So did, that's that's a character that they had there. And
1: so, did the Sheik have Ohio as well? Uh, I believe so. Yes. Okay, because that that's why I always thought was Sheik had Ohio, Montreal, like some of Canada. He had Montreal. He, he didn't have Montreal. He has Toronto. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. All right. But Dick the Bruiser stayed Indianapolis and in kind of that. The well, he
0: formerly traveled. Right. Well, you're right. Yeah, I, but yeah, then as when as he as home, homesteaded, with, yeah. he stayed there and worked for Ganya's AWA. Right. Um. Now the agreement. This this is where it gets kind of hazy. You've got the city of Chicago. Uh, you know, big Midwest population center. Right was co-owned by Dick the Bruiser and Vern Gagne for a very long time and had Bob Luce as their front man on the TV. So where he was the promoter, it was really Gagne and Bruiser behind the scenes that owned the town. So those those matches were often, uh, you had some mixed matches of AWA versus WWA talent. Okay. Sometimes it was all AWA, sometimes it was all WWA. And the TV in Chicago was often very different than what was being presented in the home territories of Minneapolis and Chicago er, oh, okay. and Indianapolis. Right. So you'd have different champs there versus in India. You know, it was all. It was. Everybody remembers, oh, no, no, everybody wrestled in the AWA. It's like, no, it wasn't originally all AWA. But then when Dick the Bruiser sold the rest of Chicago to Ganya, it became an exclusively AWA town. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, there was also. Uh, some good stories about Dick the Bruiser trying to take over Detroit from the Sheik, and that's where the whole deal with Alex Karras and the fight at oh, right. the bar came from. Right. Uh, Alex Karras was kicked out of the NFL for two years for gambling and went to do a match with Dick the Bruiser. Dick the Bruiser showed up to the bar that Alex Karras owned to drum up some business, and you know, like injured nine cops and got sixteen stitches and just.
1: It's a Saturday night. Yeah, just another Saturday night. But they didn't draw very well. But, oh, gotcha. But
0: still had the match.
1: So, how does uh, Vern Gagne in the Midwest? How does he then obtain Las Vegas? Is that just because of ESPN and striking a deal with ESPN, and they move them to a
0: uh, uh, to Vegas? I believe so. Uh, as we get okay, so we've we've done the basic. Uh, I, have we gotten everybody in the Midwest? We did Detroit, the Chic. Dick the Bruiser, Indianapolis, Ganya, That Big Swath, Bob Geigel. Right. Um, I'm just waiting for us to get to Utah and that Danny exciting Hugg. hotbed of wrestling in Utah. Well, there there <laughs> was wrestling in Utah as an offshoot of the Portland Territory. Right. No, I, exactly. But the whole deal with a lot like Portland or Utah at one time had a territory there 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 were some weekly territories in Arizona but these areas never really took off because they didn't have the population centers to really drive the cash right to to drive the machine so it was oftentimes a you know a losing a losing battle
1: is there a if you were to think about the United States as a whole is there a state that is kind of like a, a black hole for wrestling where like nothing has come from there nothing has been successful uh well you're You've got to be talking about the territory days. Cause yeah, yeah. It's and I'm national, just saying like you're right. Like, so I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm generalizing when I say that. But I'm thinking like, you know, when you look at the territories and you can think of these prominent areas and you're going, oh, there's Portland and, you know, New York and Texas here and Florida. And then it's like I'm thinking about some of these states like Colorado.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, again, these big swaths of the Midwest, Colorado, Montana. I mean, every state has had a circuit at one time or sure, another. Sure, sure. But you didn't hear about these things because there just wasn't the population. Right. Like if you were to run in Montana, you've only got four towns over a hundred thousand, but they're all like a nine hour drive apart. Right. You know, you're not going to be able to make enough to justify. Sure. Nobody's going to make enough money to want to come in and you can't control. It's much more, you can't get on TV and have the same kind of control of your, your media that you could have back in the territory. days. Right. Again, all you had to do, Oh, we're going to get this TV station. It reaches these three towns. Okay, now we can set this up. Right. Or we can produce a tape here and bicycle it out to these other stations, and that's what allows us to get our... Uh, exposure. You need it, especially in the early days of TV, you needed TV to get wrestling over because that's how you communicated your message. Right. Obviously now you can do it through YouTube and all this other stuff, but because there's so much of it, it's just incredibly watered down. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and very DIY as we talk into microphones that are attached to a video camera. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, no offense to the equipment. So, um, so California had two territories. Mike LaBelle in the Olympic, who did a combination of traditional American style wrestling and lucha libre because hey, that's where they lived. Um, also had a weekly circuit down there. And then well, you, and can I? and LaBelle
1: himself, uh, he his was it his father or his mother was the a big
0: boxing. Eileen uh, LaBelle. Eileen LaBelle. Yeah, she was the the boxing promoter in the Los Angeles area. Right. And then, of course, his brother the was... Judo Gene. Judo Gene, who is often used as the policeman. Now, Mike LaBelle uh, was not a wrestler. From what I understand and everything I have read, again, this oh, by the way, this whole podcast and everything I say here is my opinion and my interpretation of the facts. If anybody out there, Rip Rogers or anybody that might hear this has a different slant on it please i beg you contact me and fill me in let's have a discussion i want to learn this this is just my interpretation of what's going on out there absolutely so if i'm just a punk kid please please get a hold of me and tell me uh mike labelle didn't really care about wrestling just cared about the box office so he would hire a booker to come in and as long as the place sold out or the crowd was up he was happy and if uh the crowd was down. He would immediately tell the booker, cut this, ter- cut this program and move on. Sure, and yeah. he was the one that gave
1: Blassie kind of the reins to go or the freedom to go, wasn't he?
0: Well, Blassie was the booker. Right, uh, right. so he gets to give himself. Yeah, yeah, and that's how they set up that <laughs> sure. whole deal. I, again, I might be wrong. It might have been Jules Strongbow was still booking. I don't know. But that's
1: all the Los Angeles
0: Coliseum stuff. Yes, that's yes, yes. Blassie, Tolis, all of that. Yeah. Oh, okay. But that's Blassie it. had booked in Atlanta for a long time, and I've heard varying... Varying messages about about his ability. Okay. Uh, move up to San Francisco, which was put together by Roy Shires. Roy Shires was a ex-collegian, but also had a very specific formula for how he put wrestling together. Um, like, going down to what colors you could wear, what side of the Coliseum you came out, how you had to react for certain spots, it was very very strange in that, you know, the people were programmed and they bought it and it was a very satisfying, uh, logical style of wrestling. But one week, a guy's a baby face and he's overpowering people in the test of strength. And all of a sudden he turns heel the next week, he's being powered down in the same test of strength, you know, but that was just how the formula worked in that area. Right. Uh, it seemed like a bitter man as well. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, he was the one
1: that did the exposing kayfabe in the L.A. Times.
0: Uh, yes, and that was when Ganya came in. Uh, well, Shires had, <laughs> uh, Shires had lost most of his territory by that point and was only running the Cow Palace based on tape sent in from somewhere else, possibly Kansas City. Sure. And then Ganya started running in Oakland, which Shires took as an affront to his right to that area. Uh, tried to go to the NWA, but somehow got trounced out of the NWA. And he said, "Okay, if I can't run here, nobody else is." So going
1: So he to run. killed. He killed the business by exposing it to the L.A. Times. Well, well, basically,
0: he, well, he tried to expose the business. That only happened in that area. Like that wasn't a national. No, right? No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, so he, but he yeah. actually because
1: he wasn't getting the support from Shire. Uh-huh. He Ganya was. Well, Shire, in. Shire was the guy. Or Sh- I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not sure my... if it's Shire it or Shires. Yeah, it was. La- so Labelle, he wasn't getting support from Labelle. Right. Uh, Ganya was infringing, kind of coming in. And Vince Jr. was starting to, I thought. And then that's when he decided I would rather kill it my, I'd rather kill the town than have anybody get, else get in here and get money.
0: I think we're getting part of that story screwed up, but yeah, that's that's essentially essentially. It. I yeah. mean, yeah, like yeah. I say, broad strokes, but that's kind of yeah. the the take on it. So that's what that was his attempt to do. That now wrestling, there have been exposes of wrestling since Shep was a pup. Uh, Fall guys was written. <laughs> Fall guys was written by Marcus Griffin in 1933, but. Something goofy, like the entire print run was bought up, so it was a very hard-to-find book for a very long time. Uh, Saturday Evening Post did one in the early 50s. Shires did that. Uh, 2020 did that. I mean, it's happened all over, but nobody really cares. The French Angel, Maurice Tillet, was one of wrestling's biggest stars in the 1940s, and he provided a chance for some wonderful newspaper copy. The St. Louis Dispatch, reporting on Tillet's March 1940 bout, provides one such example. The Angel, stripped, proved to be a misshapen specimen of manhood. True, his big hideous head scared the women around ringside, and would probably even alarm Boris Karloff. He has a barrel-like chest, a long torso, but his arms did not seem possessed of unusual strength, and his legs were the legs of a 36-year-old man. Unusual is a far more fair term to describe Tillet than the usual mean-spirited nicknames of the world's ugliest man, freak, or human monstrosity. Born on October 23, 1903, in the Russian Ural Mountains to French parents, his mother was a teacher, and his father an engineer on the railroad. His father died when Maurice was young. He was perfectly normal at birth, had a keen mind, an intelligent curiosity, and a well-built body. He was a slim boy with blonde hair and an angelic face. His friends nicknamed him the Angel, records the French Angel record book. In 1917, the Russian Revolution forced Maurice and his mother back to France. At age 17, Maurice noticed an unusual swelling in his hands, head, and his feet, and the doctors diagnosed it as a disease called acromegaly, a condition that causes swelling of the bone and is caused by malfunction of the pituitary gland. For five years, Talley served in the French Navy as an engineer on cruisers, torpedo boats, and submarines. In February 1937, he met American wrestler Carl Pogello in Singapore. Pogello convinced Talley that pro wrestling would be his route to riches, and they set off to Paris for training. They also spent time in the Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport at the Milda Gym. The Angel wrestled in England and France until World War II drove the pair to the United States in 1939. It was Boston promoter Paul Bowser that saw dollar signs everywhere and pushed the French Angel to the moon in 1940. At 5 feet 7 inches tall and 270 pounds, Talay was an awesome, if disproportioned, physical specimen who was able to shuffle three decks of cards at a time in his massive hands or pull a subway car. The fans crowded arenas to get a look at him when the aberrant animal ambled down the aisle their curiosity was well satisfied, wrote Paul Bosch in his autobiography. The angel was difficult to wrestle. His size and his balance, along with a certain clumsiness that created an unorthodox defense, made you wary when you entered the ring. Tillet held the Boston version of the world title from May 1940 to May 1942 and again for a few weeks in 1944, along with the Montreal version of the belt in the spring of 42. He held wins over all the top stars of the era, from Ed Strangler Lewis to Man Mountain Dean to Joel Savoldi to the incomparable Lou Thez. By 1945, he began putting newer stars over as his health problems continued. Ed Francis wrestled and traveled with Tillet near the end of Angel's career. He was so weak at the time, he coached me on what to do. If he went down to his knees, you had to pick him up. Away from the ring, Tillet was shy around people he didn't know, but brilliant as well, a polyglot and an avid reader. He died on September 4, 1950, in France, just hours after learning that his manager Pagello had died two weeks earlier at age 61 of lung cancer. The official cause was heart disease. Pagello and Tillet are interred in a Chicago area cemetery, and their tombstones are available for public view. Just to finish up, uh, we shoot up to the Pacific Northwest with the Owens that started promoting wrestling there in 1933. Again, they're the local guy. They got in with the commissioner. They got the TV station. So if you wanted to run wrestling in that area, you had to go through them. I heard there was a lot of uh, outlaw
1: promotions, actually, that ran up in the Portland area. Right. It seemed right. like at that point.
0: Oh, oh yeah. Well, again, they ran you know 70-some years. So, yeah, there there was always some opposition. Yeah. Um, Uh, There's also a very strong state commission in Portland, which led to the downfall, uh, helped to lead to the downfall of that territory. But the territories were all going to die out because of the proliferation of national broadcasting and how television shows could cross borders that they formerly couldn't cross. Sure. So people, for the first time, had a an opportunity to contrast and everybody always wants to go with the new thing. So that's why they would start to follow the WWE. Uh, The WWE F also did um, (laughs) back when they were the WWF. What, what Vince basically did was took this established system and just crossed all the borders to try to get it. Right. Like he actively went into stations that had been negotiated with on like exchange of commercial time. And suddenly Vince was paying the station to play his tape. Right. So that's that's how he destroyed this this whole this whole system.
1: Right, right. Um before we actually go on um and uh where, where we decide to go next, um I want to go back to Texas
0: because yes. oh, yeah. I think that we, we very
1: we yeah, we we hit uh Paul Bosch and then I think we just moved on pretty quickly. And I think just the obvious one, um, you know, talking about uh um von Erich's world class championship wrestling, Fritz von Erich. Um give me your take on that.
0: Uh, Texas was very interesting in that you had your major towns, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso. All of these towns were basically run as separate entities, but they all belonged to the Texas booking office, which was based out of Dallas. Okay. So... Uh, those all of those satellite cities would get their top three four matches from Dallas, and then they would accentuate those with you know their whatever local talent or whatever names they wanted to bring in. Sure, their
1: end. I think it's ridiculous <laughs> as I'm thinking about it. We just got done covering Portland, where at a point Portland wrestling was called Big Time Wrestling. Right, Sheik's got Big Time Wrestling Detroit. Yep. And before it was world class championship wrestling, it was big time wrestling. Sure, not a lot of creativity going on. Yeah, you didn't need yeah, it. Yeah, you know, it was fine. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, like they might as well have been continents away. Right. At that point, but it's just kind of funny how that you can see, you know, it's like uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, you have these, uh, you know. You you think about just how it's set up and the best they could do. They're just like, yeah, we'll we'll go with big-time wrestling, too. Why not? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but wasn't World Class also in bed with, like, was it um, India or somewhere where they were doing tours outside of the... Israel. Israel. That was it.
0: Well, what, what World Class was doing at that point was taking that tape and actively shopping it around for syndication. Okay. Because they saw that Vince is doing this... Because all you needed to do. So to they're totally like, Israel seems like the next logical place. Well, to, but, but to shoot who out knows how these deals were put together? Sure. You know, maybe Fritz was in the country club and, oh, yeah, I'm an investor in Israel TV. Oh, yeah, sure. We'll give you a tape. They run it for six weeks. Come on over and run it to us. Was that an Irish accent you were I, doing? You know, whatever. It was <laughs> a- ambiguously foreign. Sure. So, ambiguously foreign. I'll accept that. Um, you know, and that's how a lot of it, Cactus Jack in his first book talks about going on tours in like Nigeria or some other oddly named African country, Pago Pago or, or no, sure. Pago Pago yep. isn't even in Africa, but it was an African country. You know, so you know how do these deals get set up? It's it's very strange. All right. of a sudden, the guy calls you, up, "Hey, I got this thing set up. Are you available for these dates?" Oh, "Sure." Send me a deposit. Boom. Suddenly, and now you can say, you know, right? I, I've run over here.
1: Yeah, no, it's um, a, it's very some interesting. some guys
0: on my level, Danny Scott and Bailey Mannix work shows in Portugal.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: it's like how do you get to Portugal?
1: Pra- yeah, practice. How? Do, right, that's good swimming. Yes, good strokes. Well, very good. Going back to Texas for the third time. Um, Joe a big, Blanchard, big state. It is a big state. I nice. understand the stars at night are big and bright. Very good, and you can't uh, you know it eats like a meal or. Uh, what, what do they say? It doesn't have a basement. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so Joe
0: Blanchard, uh, he was also a uh, Texas promoter. Uh, was that grandfather of the current indie wrestling superstar, Tessa Blanchard? Sure. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were hip. That's fine.
1: Yeah. No, not not so much. Um, but so, yeah. So we we've sorry. discussed... Uh, Von Eriks in World Class, we discussed the yes. Bosch uh, and now we have Blanchard.
0: Well Blanchard was originally part of the booking office. I want to say he yeah, he was part of the Texas booking office, but every six weeks would bring in a a lucha a lucha match or whatever. So again, he was wasn't necessarily his own booker. He just ran the territory. At some point he got uh frustrated with uh, Fritz in the Texas booking office an attempt to break off and form his own thing. Southwest sports, um, had a tournament. Was that in, he, it may have been him and Bosch breaking off from the, the deal. Cause I could swear that the tournament was held in the hemisphere arena, but I can't remember what city that's in, uh, had a tournament for his own world heavyweight champion. And of course they had issued the challenges, to the NWA, AWA, but they came unanswered. So we had this tournament to crown a new world heavyweight champion. The finals was uh, Adrian Adonis against Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., which was just an incredible match, of course. And Adrian Adonis was the first champion. Now, this was interesting in that Fez was somehow involved, so Adonis got an NWA domed globe, domed globe a uh, copy for the belt. Oh what? <laughs> uh domed globe. Oh that that's what they uh, a I dome a globe with a dome on it. Got okay, yeah. Uh, domed Globe.
1: Yeah. Say sorry. that say that ten times fast. No.
0: Um got this belt, but also was given temporary possession of Lou Thez's nineteen thirty eight belt. So Thez was somehow involved, but Aunt Adonis didn't keep that belt because he probably would have pawned it. Um so he was the world heavyweight champion there for a while, but then like Blanchard couldn't follow up the couldn't follow up the promotion, and that belt was later forgotten. Mm-hmm. But uh, as part of breaking off like this, Blanchard had the great idea to call one of his buddies and get on this new thing called the USA Network, which is one of these weird cable networks that goes all over the U.S. So Southwest Championship Wrestling was playing on the USA Network for a period of time until there was a a conflict which has ranged from either being behind on bills to an angle where Bobby Jaggers poured pig shit all over Scott Casey that led to them getting kicked off the USA Network. Suddenly, what? There's this other New York promoter? We're dealing with these hicks down in San Antonio, Texas. But here's this New York promoter that's got this slick new presentation, and he's going to catch us up on his bills, and he's going to pay us each week to put this tape on. So let's go ahead and do this. Boom. That's how Vince gets USA. That's how he goes national.
1: So the question off of that is, is there footage of the pig shit?
0: Yes, and it's dirt mixed in water. That's all it is. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some question, like, anecdotally, that's what got them kicked off, but it may have been more of a money issue, and we're just, we're tired of you, and here's somebody that's going to be responsible.
1: Sure. And then Blanchard ends up selling off uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling to Fred Barron, and then become, takes over the Stanley Blackburn um, job in AWA.
0: Yes, but that's because he was an old crony of Ganya's going back to this when all the owners would get together and hang out. Gotcha. So that's, again, there's always some weird connection, like, I want to say Geigle, Ganya... Maybe Watts, uh, Blanchard, like all of these guys were like in college and in athletics at the same time together. So they were all buds. Uh, Dick the Bruiser was kind of in this too. So they were all buds and got each other. And that that's part of the old boy network of the, the territory yes. system.
1: And I think we know, I mean, it, it's been beaten into the ground a lot. WWF comes in, starts airing these syndicated programs throughout the right. United now, what States. Right. Now,
0: again, what they did was went into the established tele, the studio and said, what time do you play, like, when is your, your station's time for wrestling? Oh, we pay at 11 o'clock every Sunday. I want you to put my tape on during that time, and here's X, X amount of dollars, and I'll pay you this much every week to put this on there. So the television station is looking at a business decision of here's a show that we're not getting paid to put on and it's only the commercial time that we can sell or here's a ready-made tape and here's money on top of it that will just go to your bottom line.
1: Which, only in the world of wrestling, would pay to play yeah. actually be <laughs> beneficial to somebody.
0: Well, this is one thing. Uh, you asked about Jim Barnett earlier, uh Fascinating individual. We could do a whole segment. On right. Him. But he was very involved in, you know, again, 50 Chicago getting getting his product on the Marigold Arena. And, uh, you know, it, that was being run by Fred Kohler at the time with Fred Kohler Enterprises, getting that product on the TV, whining and dining the the TV executives to make sure you got preferred deal, but never paying to get your stuff on TV. So that's one thing that Jim Barnett as one of the innovators was very much like, no, this in this formula for doing this, you can't pay, you shouldn't pay to get your product on TV because they want viewers for their television set and that's how the the business worked back then. Okay. Uh but Vince came in so a lot of these uh you know TV deals were handshake deals done because like they were trained by Jim Barnett in that school of wrestling, you have to wine and dine your station managers and make sure these people are in your pocket, you know, so those handshake deals. Then all of a sudden Vince came in and just blew all of that away. So, boom, he's now replaced he's now replaced his product for the, what you're used to seeing at the time you're used to seeing it. Again, right. eleven o'clock Sunday Sunday morning after Hogan's Heroes. That's the only time you can see wrestling. Suddenly you turn on, boom. Well, what's all this? And you didn't like it, but you watched it, you right, know, because it was the only wrestling. And then this led led the home promotion to have to try and find another time slot or another television station. Also, Vince came in and signed all of the established talent to contracts so they could only wrestle for him. He was very aggressive in the AWA area for doing this by waiting until uh, Hogan versus Ventura matches were announced on the AWA television. And then he went in, snatched all that up, stole the TV, and suddenly started presenting cards in the Minneapolis area featuring Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Gene Okerlund. So, like, he stole them but went into the same area so that he was able to draw the people with him. And were people like Hogan or people that
1: were in some of these different territories and promotions, the contract wasn't, there. there was, was it more handshake contracts back in that day, and Vince was the one that basically brought in the actual written...
0: Essentially, yes. Um, There were... You know, obviously, I can't I can't state there were never contracts. I'm sure there right. were some there deals was and some there appearance bonds or something. But for the most part, it was handshake deals, and the industry standard was, what if you weren't featured, you had to give two weeks notice. If you were featured, you had to give four weeks, and if you had a belt, you had to give six weeks notice. Like that was the mm-hmm. established. We need to transition, you know, these storylines away from you. But during that notice time, you also knew you were going to be beat, 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 beat. So right, that right. So that anywhere else, the last time that people see you, oh, he got beat by so-and-so. Yeah. So they would try and job you out. Uh, but what Vince did was sign these people up and said, I need you to report to work tomorrow. So suddenly the local promotion is left with all these no-shows, but all the boys are for this other group, you know, making money over here. Right.
1: And just pretty much vanish. They're ghosts. It's gone. And well, they're ghosts,
0: but no, you see them on TV and well, suddenly... very, very, suddenly got, very
1: in-your-face ghosts that yeah, show up on Yeah, in-your-face ghosts that suddenly
0: have new names in a lot of
1: times. Right,
0: you know? right. And that was just Vince's marketing of he didn't want to market anybody else's name. He wanted to own his properties. Right. Which I all understand. Right, I mean, no, it makes incredible sense. Incredible businessman. It just broke up this romanticized notion of how wrestling used to be.
1: It broke up the giant monopoly that is the territories.
0: Yes, uh... And let's not let's not fool ourselves. There was a lot of crap on TV back then. I mean, not a lot of crap is in uh, like what, yeah, volume. Wolf? What? Like Airwolf? Uh, uh, no, I'm, oh, refer- I'm referring to wrestling. Okay, like a cool. lot of the TV at the time. Manimal? Oh, I used to like wrestling when I was a kid. Well, if you go back and look at some of those studio shows, there was a lot of incredibly poor wrestling. <laughs> I know. Yeah. For everything that was good, there was a lot that was just right. like... Eee. Again,
1: I think we can look through it like with those yeah. rose-colored glasses, that romanticized version of how we remember things being... Correct. And you look at it now, and you kind of go, eh. you know, "Uh, it doesn't it, sit right my sometimes. My big
0: thing for that is world-class matches, because I go back and watch the Von Erichs and the Freebirds, and they're all so sloppy. Sure. So sloppy, just punching each other right It was just punch face. and kick, right?
1: Wasn't that uh, that's well, all I, they did down there? Well, no, Seemed no. That way, No, least.
0: Memphis was more of a punch and kick... Um I'd say Texas had more of the brawling. They had different <laughs> Yeah, can you differentiate no, no, no.
1: brawling from punching and kicking? Uh
0: elbows. Um you know, there was some wrestling. Yeah, yeah. There was some wrestling, but you know, the more organized you watch like you watch Jerry Lawler against Jackie Fargo, that whole match is nothing but punches. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. there's a story to it and it all makes sense, but it's just two guys duking it out. Right. But you go to World Class, there is some of that wrestling and jockeying, but it's not as punch centric as the Memphis style. Sure. No. Okay. I get <laughs> you. Know, you. Are, I, I hear Guys are being picked from. up and slammed, and all this other right. stuff. Uh Texas always had a very aggressive, aggressive wrestling style. Again, because of the you know people, the ranchers out at you know wrestling bulls all day. They want to see a contest. They want to see you know right. down and dirty fight.
1: Right. So you have. WWF goes out and acquires the talent, acquires the TV spots. You have uh, NWA, I guess you could say, like the Crockett's right. that area. They start acquiring mid South, uh,
0: uh, right? Well, Don't... let's let's back up a little bit. Sure. So Vince is starting to go national. Uh, a lot of the promoters are from the old school. They try to band together. Ah, this pro wrestling USA thing, right? But they're saying things like Vince is running in our backyard. We're gonna run in his backyard, right?
1: And that get, takes him up to East Rutherford, right?
0: But what they fail to see is that the whole country is Vince's backyard, though. right? You know, and they're just trying to do the very old we're going to try and suck money out of his population center here but vern isn't or vince isn't really concerned about what he's making in new york that week he's concerned about what he's making in denver colorado mm-hmm. or minneapolis minnesota or st louis oh yeah you know so it's it's hard they were responding with a playbook that was horribly outdated at that point right and didn't have the money or the production values behind them that Vince had, so it looked markedly different on TV. Um, Vince's product had the spotlights and the clear clear focus and everything, but a lot of the local wrestling was still direct to videotape from a studio. Right. And it just it didn't look right. It looked low rent, right. and the level of talent they were able to get, a la the Batten Twins or <laughs> Rooster <laughs> right. Griffin or...
1: Well, I was always amazed. Doc Baker
0: managing the Russian brute. Right. Well,
1: I was always amazed, too, when you had those promotions, the Pro Wrestling USA, um, when they tried to do Super Clash, things along that line. And you look at the, you know, like what the eyes are bigger than the stomach, so to speak. um, Right. And you're seeing that they're booking out Wrigley Field or Comiskey Park or whatever it is, and they're drawing a couple thousand people. At the most for some of those events. No, with,
0: Super Clash did pretty good.
1: Well, the uh, like, but what, if you're talking about you're getting to like Super Clash three. When yeah, that, really did, that did
0: horrible because that only drew like two thousand. That was run on like a Wednesday, right? Yeah, but still, it, it, but that's what I'm saying.
1: It's like that these. Well, I mean, these business practices. But what I was going to get to, I well, guess.
0: No, no, I want to get back to that. Sure, sure. Because you're, you're talking the business practices again. The local promoters or the old time promoters are responding with the playbook that they know, but they can't acknowledge that Vince has changed the rules. Right. So they think. Oh, we're wrestling. We we have to be in the biggest building because because we're wrestling. But they're not honestly looking at their drawing power and what they need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of it was ego and used to being the only game in town. And well, this is what I've had to do. But never, not really having that drive or ability to change their formula. Right. Well, so
1: what I was saying before was, you know, like you said, you have Vince, but his background is the United States. You have Crockett's. Essentially, in that Georgia, Carolina area, right? They take
0: um, Bill well, Watts. Well, now, why was why were they able to take Bill Watts? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm setting you up here. So, so, yes, the let whole me know. reason they were able to take Bill Watts is because they were able to negotiate their relationship with Turner Broadcasting, which dates back to the early '70s, to become another national platform. Right. So they have, they now have the exposure to try and and, and television penetration in these other areas to feature their wrestlers, right? So they can buy out Florida, and, and you know consolidate those areas.
1: And that's what I was trying to get at was like this consolidation starts to happen to the territory system, because you're also seeing World Class ends up uh, USWA, I believe at one point. Well,
0: World Class tried to break off from the NWA by itself, but had its own host of problems as to why business went down um was actually a very very small regional promotion when they got a hold of Jerry Jarrett who wanted to come in they had built up a syndication network but they weren't manufacturing any tv footage to feed that network so that's when Jerry Jarrett came in and tried to build that back up is it uh, when i envisioned the territories in the later days of the
1: territories I almost envision this like sweeping to the east. Um, And what I mean by that is uh, you don't so much think of there being uh, looking at mid to late 80s when the territories were definitely going the way of the dinosaur at that point. I feel like that's where you start seeing promotions consolidating to the east. You're looking at your Memphis market was still there. Yeah, uh, you're again, Carolina. Well, Mem-
0: Memphis. Memphis is an anomaly because that was still a weekly territory.
1: Would you say that's the last territory? That's oh yeah, I, yeah, that
0: was like the absolute like that the was true, the last weekly territory. The true last weekly territory was Memphis. Correct. And before them, it was Portland, which wound up what ninety one, ninety three, and that was they lost their sponsor, uh, problems with the state, and I want to say. Maybe the building got sold or something so like
1: that. So, we're butting up against what I like to call the wall of where we deal in in that yes. 93. We hit, I, we're trying to keep things back aged, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and still touching on that Portland deal, though. At that point, when you have Portland out west and that's going, uh-huh. um, again, we talk about the consolidation of things coming into Crockett's, right. Vince, and all that. Are we seeing anything? I know, uh, you know, you want to call them the outlaws or the independents. Are you seeing any of that stuff still happening in the California area? Oh yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's. I mean, it's it's always been there, and I understand that. But uh, the names, like like I say, when you think Portland wrestling, you think Don Owen, and when you think of you can name a territory, you can think of the promoters, you can think of the uh, wrestlers that are in there. But I'm thinking of, you know, yes, if you're saying oh Portland was still around, oh okay, I get that. But clearly, um, you know, wrestling at that point wasn't um, was it happening at the L.A. Coliseum still in eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty no. nine? That was it was completely it was no a no done it was all thing. driven
0: under down to the clubs because they didn't have real TV penetration or production to drive that style of show. So
1: at that point, I'm using the air quotes again, the territory that. California territory—that's San Francisco. There's shows running, but it's not considered a territory. It's just a place that's running yeah. small shows at that point.
0: Yeah, and, and, that, and you that's, might be able to hook up with somebody that you know knows you know shows in a given given diameter. You could probably work two or three times a week, but you you weren't you weren't putting in your TV and then playing off of that TV or on the loop. Right. Or anything like that.
1: And I think that's what I'm saying where I'm envisioning that sweep of the East Coast, like to the East, is that you're starting to see just the smaller little spot promotions appear. Portland goes away.
0: Well, okay, but I'll agree with you with this big sweep to the East Coast. One, because that's where the population media centers are. Right. So that's where all the media is coming out of. Um Oh, I was going somewhere else with this. And you're seeing these little promotions pop up because the local promotion has been destroyed.
1: Right. Because the, the, the territory, in the true sense of the word, as we know it, has been destroyed at that point. Right. Right. There's, so no, there's everybody no organized was just
0: promotion. Um, in a lot of places, the state commission, like in Illinois, the state commission dried up because it wasn't generating enough money to perpetuate itself. So, uh, you know, all of these laws are changing. Um, you're also starting to get to the point where information is becoming more readily available. Right. I I would just like to take a little aside here if I could going back to when wrestling was this totally controlled and closed society. Like you had to know somebody that would tell you where to get gear. Right. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So that's why, uh, beginning in the fifties, the biggest supplier for gear in the U.S. was KH and h Carl and Hildegard. And that was recognized within the business that, oh, oh we're going to get you go, let's give Carl let's give and Hildegard a call and get you something. And it was a big business. And that's why in all of these old wrestling photos, like a lot of the Memphis books and whatever retrospectives you find, if you look, all of the gear looks the same because it all came from this one company. Consequently, the boots were only from from a very few areas like Clifford Messias in Houston, uh, Bill Ash in the Arkansas area. Like you, you had to know somebody to get referred for the industry goods. You know, very similar to nowadays. If you wanted to become a carny, you've got to find somebody that can hook you up with where to get your carnival prizes and all this right. other stuff like there so it was
1: pull a couple teeth for you
0: yeah well no no you mean like where like where would you do that where would you buy that stuff in bulk no i know i was just making
1: fun it. of carnies
0: okay well fair enough but i'm just trying to state that it was i'm trying to think of some societies that are still semi-closed like maybe sure. maybe you know magicians or something
1: imagine if we knew more about the freemasons we'd be able to include that oh, in but the all
0: of that is available as well is it all oh, the freemasons: oh sure don't tell me you have a pamphlet in your car. No, I do not have a pamphlet in my car, but I have done numerous reading on the um, like initiation rites that they would do to take you. Like that stonecutters episode from The Simpsons is yes. very close to very real life. Close. Very good. All right, so we're getting off of that. No, and that's fine. So, uh, but th- yeah, the business was closed. It was closed enough that everybody got their stuff at the same place, you know. And that's obviously, you know, oh my wife made this or something like that. That was always there, but for the most part. If you wanted to be a wrestler, you got your stuff here.
1: And so, and you needed that connection inside the territory with the family running the business. Correct. Well, and there you have it. That's the uh, territories as seen through the eyes of Derek St. Holmes. Uh, once again, this is Cigars and Conversations. I'm your co host, Jay Gilkey. And uh, looking forward to next time when we meet, uh, we are going to be talking about the battles of Atlanta. Um, notice I put a s on there and made that plural. Um, recently, footage surfaced of the uh, Tommy Rich-Buzz Sawyer last battle of Atlanta. Um, that footage was thought to have been lost for years, and uh, what a lot of people don't realize is there was another battle for Atlanta about 15 years earlier that was not in the public eye. Uh, the fighting was just as dirty and the effects of the confrontation helped to shape wrestling for 40 years after the dust settled. So join us next time on Cigars and Conversations at onegimmickworld.com as we talk about the battles of Atlanta. Again, we'd like to thank sound engineer Kyle Arpke for helping out and uh, some musical production from Eric R. Snow. This has been Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire,